Welcome to the Blockbusters and Birdwalks podcast. I am the curator, Garrett Chaffin Kirai. To say Toby Hooper's The Texas Chainsaw Massacre is unpleasant is an understatement. Even now, decades removed from its original 1974 release, the film is a revolting exercise in spectatorial discomfort. In fact, the film's remarkable impact is precisely owed to its rather raw, independent, and amateurish quality, inasmuch as that formal lack of Hollywood sheen lends the feeling of being a nightmare. The film which you are about to see is an account of the tragedy which befell a group of five youths. We meet the whiny, wheelchair-bound paraplegic Franklin, Paul A. Partain, his sister Sally, Marilyn Burns, Sally's glasses-wearing boyfriend Jerry, Alan Danziger, and the trio's horny friends Kirk, William Vale, and his girlfriend Pam, Terry McMinn. Each of these five is unsympathetic and selfish. Each of them is carefree and oblivious. And, most importantly, each of the five is meat for the inevitable killing grinder alluded to in the movie title. Hooper's movie is cleanly divided into two parts. The movie's first half introduces the five young travelers as we hear a radio broadcast describing a cemetery desecration as the first shot of the film. Grave robbing in Texas is this hour's top news story. An informant led officers of the Muerto County Sheriff's Department to a cemetery just outside the small rural Texas community of Newt early this morning. Importantly, Sally and Franklin's grandfather is one of several bodies that have been molested in the graveyard, although they appear oblivious to this fact as they head towards Sally and Franklin's grandfather's abandoned family estate and pick up a spooky hitchhiker, Edwin Neal. The encounter with the stranger is awkward, and made worse with his stories of slaughterhouse practices. They take the head, and they boil it, except for the tongue. And they scrape all the flesh away from the bone. They, they use everything. They don't throw nothing away. They, they use the, the jowls, and the muscles, and the, the eyes, and the ligaments, and everything. After dumping the hitchhiker off on the side of the road, the travelers pull into a gas station, but there is no fuel in the pump. The old man, Jim Sydow, who attends the station, advises them to stay close by and wait, citing the potential to cross the wrong kind of Texan. So they spend their day at Sally and Franklin's nearby ancestral family home. Kirk and Pam leave the group to find an old watering hole and spy a neighbor's house with a gas-generated piece of equipment. Hoping to barter for fuel, they approach the two-story prairie home, but nobody answers their calls until a mask-wearing, chainsaw-and-hammer-wielding terror, Leatherface, Gunner Hansen, kills them in a homemade abattoir. Worried about his friends, Jerry meets Leatherface and is killed with a hammer. Then night descends upon Sally and Franklin, and they agree to search for the others with a flashlight when Leatherface kills Franklin, leaving Sally to flee for her life alone. So begins the grim second half of the movie that is an extended chase, wherein Sally repeatedly escapes her pursuers, each time with increasing personal horror as she is recaptured and subjected to more torturous violence. Along the way, she discovers how the old man at the gas station, the hitchhiker, and Leatherface are members of a dysfunctional family of former slaughterhouse workers displaced by factory farms. Having resorted to cannibalism to fill their plates, they now hunt whatever game comes their way, and they plan to use Sally as the centerpiece of a feast for Grandpa, 
John Duga, an extraordinarily decrepit old man and the family patriarch. I've been thinking about letting Grandpa have some fun. You always said he's the best. Uh, he's the best, all right. Just let him have a whack. Hey, Grandpa, we're going to let you have this one. Sally finally breaks free and runs to the nearby country highway while the hitchhiker slashes at her back until he is accidentally run over by a passing semi. When a pickup truck drives past her, Sally jumps into the flat bed as the sounds of her hysterical screams and laughter bleed together with Leatherface's chainsaw in a fit of missed opportunity. End credits. Once you stop screaming, then you'll start talking about it, suggests the copy from one of the film's promotional posters, and the sentiment is largely true. The Texas Chainsaw Massacre is worth talking about to unpack its cruelty, and it did usher in the late 1970s rush of slasher and sexploitation horror movies, largely based on the final girl model of Sally Hardesty. Of course, there were several earlier contributors to the model, including classic films like Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho and Michael Powell's Peeping Tom, both from 1960, and the then-recent exploitation favorite Wes Craven's The Last House on the Left from 1972. But Hooper's movie was undeniably unique as a cultish midnight movie that went mainstream, sort of, when John Carpenter's Halloween organized the final girl form with more sophisticated techniques in 1978, leaving behind Hooper's take on hellishly unbelievable worlds in which the killing takes place as a task of everyday life among dispossessed factory workers. Budgeted for $140,000, the film also went on to gross some $31 million domestically, making it a huge hit. More than that, it provided the basis and intellectual property for many sequels, remakes, and offshoots in the intervening years between then and now, and it spawned countless rip-offs, knock-offs, spoofs, and homage in various movies and TV programs. It even led to an Atari video game in 1982 in which the game player hunts trespassers as Leatherface. What's most profoundly disturbing about the Texas Chainsaw Massacre now rests on its simplistic formal quality. Hooper made an 83-minute-long movie built on handheld camera work, zoom lenses, very little music, virtually no character development, and the entirely grotesque premise of cannibalism as an alternative way of life, much like how the counterculture had been pushing back against boomer conformity during the same time period. The film's focus is frequently pushed in to examine the decor and costume of the killer family, or else we are forced to see the fear and hysterical terror that Sally expresses as she grapples with the reality that she's being made into dinner. Extreme close-ups of her eyes in particular give the film a disembodied, almost abstract expression of geometry rather than a narrative. The Texas Chainsaw Massacre is also interested in Gallo's humor, as if to underscore the plot with enough natural detail to make it seem realer than real. These rednecks might really exist, and they might really eat people, which was expressed on a bigger scale 18 months earlier in the spring of 1973 when Richard Fleischer's Soylent Green was released. Silent Green is people! Thus, Leatherface is a near-mute, bumbling idiot, who wears different skin masks depending on his household duties and the time of day. He's part cook, part butler, part host, and maid. The hitchhiker is a psychopath, and he's lost the only profession he's ever known, now forced to live in isolation among a house of horrors with terrible roommates. 
Then there is their father, the old man, who is averse to killing, despite the necessity to stock his barbecue business at the roadside service station and to feed his family. The Texas Chainsaw Massacre is definitely not an advertisement for the beef and poultry lobby, nor is it a protagonist-driven classical narrative. In fact, it's boring in stretches and uneven in mood, all the more when we begin to identify, sort of, with Leatherface as he kills these travelers, especially Franklin. Naturally, Sally is the exception to this rule of mixed-up psychological connection, but she earns our devotion because she's so ruthlessly pursued by the cannibal family, not because she's attractive or interesting. The Texas Chainsaw Massacre is also a tribute to the University of Texas at Austin's developing film studies and film production programs during the 1970s, and it presents a rather blunt study of the modern age, that increasingly marginalizes working-class people through automation. The cannibal family is highly symbolic of the dispossessed American hinterland, and here I'm leaning hard on Robin Wood's book, Hollywood from Vietnam to Reagan, first published in 1986. Having been made obsolete by the changing economy of the post-World War II period, the cannibal family is an exaggerated vision of how a wide swath of physical laborers can adapt themselves to a world that time quite literally forgot. Enjoying none of the benefits of a more efficient world with refinements like processed foods, instantaneous communications, and consumer electronics, the cannibal family founders, in relative isolation, fighting for a subsistence living while equally upholding the long-standing American values of thrift, creativity, and invention. Unfortunately for our five travelers, this laudable display of national virtue comes at the expense of losing all mooring about right versus wrong. The result is an Ed Gein-inspired motion picture with a context-setting radio narration by John Larroquette that's filled in with small moments of real terror. Witness the hitchhiker's self-mutilation as a baptism by fire for the five young adults who should have taken a clue. <laughs> Witness Pam's reluctant view of Kirk's dismemberment as she hangs, dying, from a blood-rusted meat hook. <laughs> Witness Grandpa's repeated attempts to kill Sally with a hammer, although he lacks the strength to deliver a single death blow. Witness Leatherface's mania at letting Sally escape after cutting his own thigh and watching his brother, the hitchhiker, being run over by a passing truck. We may now remember 1974 as the year Francis Ford Coppola won another Oscar for The Godfather Part II after competing with Roman Polanski's Chinatown and the Paul Newman and Steve McQueen action-adventure vehicle The Towering Inferno. Yet, it was equally the year of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, a raw mix of high and low art, good and bad technique, strong social commentary, and horrific sequencing that delivered and continues to deliver one of the most powerful wallops American cinema has ever seen. See it at your own peril, but see it just the same. The Saw is family. Thank you for listening to the Blockbusters and Birdwalks podcast. My name is Garrett Chaffin-Kirai. Boop-boobity-doo!